0: that way lauren come on up while the uh while the kids are disappearing pull this out of your bulletin this insert this is a this is a summary of uh, our fiscal year ends in august And this is a summary of uh, the finances for last year. Lauren is our treasurer, one of our elders. Thanks for coming up, Lauren.
1: Thank you. If you'll note on the insert, um, there's some information about our general fund finances, our benevolence fund, and the food bank. And also, uh, with just a few weeks left in this year, this is just a picture of where we're at right now. Uh, Our fiscal year runs uh, September through August, so we're just a few months away from being halfway through our fiscal year. But the elders and the staff wanted to thank everyone for your generosity um, and how you've blessed uh, this church community and um, how it's enabled us to uh, minister to everyone and for the possibilities for uh, uh, future ministry in other areas. And... um, so anyway, we just wanted to let you know where we stood on that and, and thank you for that and let you know that the elders will be praying about what to do with um, the money that you've blessed us with as far as different ministries. So if you'll pray with me. Dear Lord, we just thank you for um, this church family that's so generous and loving, and we just pray, Lord, that you would guide us and direct us in how we use this and that we would um, just uh, be able to bless uh, our community, and our church family. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Lauren.
0: You know, we've talked several times as elders that uh, money is never the problem, ever. I teach that at the seminary, that money's never the issue. If we don't have enough money, or if we have too much money, it's revealing something. And the job of the elders is to figure out what that is. Uh, but money's never the issue. And so we feel very blessed by you as a congregation. Thank you for that. On um, the back of the bulletin, a couple of things to bring to your attention that you need to pay attention to as we get closer to Christmas Eve, which is coming up. First of all, you'll see that Christmas Eve services, there are two of them, 4 and 6. 4 and 6 p.m. Okay? They're full. They're always full. And there's always room for more. So invite your friends. You can stand along the walls while your friends sit down. How's that? (laughs) The second thing is you'll notice in the green box that we still need, I think, six more ushers. When we have Christmas Eve services, here's what it looks like for those of you that have not been here. This room is completely full, 100%. Across in the commons, that's all opened up. That room is completely full. And the narthex out here is full as well. And depending on the year, sometimes you have people standing. And so it takes quite a few people to do things like serve communion and all that. We don't serve communion the way we do here. It would be a complete zoo if we did that. So we pass communion on Sunday evenings. So if you've never ushered, uh, we could use your help. We'll be glad to train you how to do it. So there's a sign up there. Put your name on there, and we'll contact you. And then uh, the last thing I want to bring to your attention is December 30th, the last day of the year, we have one service at 930, just one every year. We finish our year with a year in praise service. And it's a chance to take mics around and listen to what God has done. Um, Maybe the way he's blessed you. Maybe a challenge he's taken you through. Maybe a new idea you've, you know, a new direction you're taking, whatever it is. And so we have a fun time, that last service. And so uh, read that, and you're in celebration. You want to be a part of that. So let's stop, and um, we're going to ask the Lord. Uh, for just a moment, to be with us. You saw in the video up there, first of all, did you notice the two Schmidt boys? They're kind of like their dad. Thoughtful and reflective. (laughs) Uh, They're pretty fun. But did you notice how they range on the spectrum of it's cold and touchy to it feels great? Right? It's inside. Do you notice that? And so... Last week, <laughs> last week, somebody said, I was waiting all week to hear how you're going to preach the sermon. And I said, me too. <laughs> so that happened this week as well. And so I've been asking people, in fact, I asked my staff this week about touch. What does Christmas feel like? Half the staff went towards the senses, and the other half went toward the emotions and the feelings. And it gives you some insight into what the Bible does. The fact that we naturally move back and forth, and those kids, without asking, just, they nailed it, didn't they? Sometimes it feels cold and fun and tasty and all that, and other times it feels warm inside and good. And So Judy Deal came up to me in the first serve, before the first service and gave me a hug and said, this is what Christmas feels like. And so I didn't get to all of you, but I started hugging everybody. This is what Christmas feels like. And uh, that's, that's, that's what Christmas is all about. So let's stop and let's pray and invite the Lord to laugh at us. I think he thinks this is funny. Father, we delight in serving you and doing our very best to make sense of, of some of these passages which are complicated. We just love it. And we do think that you sit up there and smile at us. We learned last week that we are a fragrant aroma to you. And so we know that you just enjoy us. And we're grateful for that. So bless us today as we step into this world of touch and feel and all of that and what that has to do with Christmas and Advent. In your son's name, amen. Okay, we're in the third Sunday of Advent. What does Christmas feel like? And for those of you that are visitors, you're going, what does Christmas feel like? Well, see, here's the way it works. Every year I let the children's ministry kind of dictate what we're going to talk about. I don't know until they tell me. So my job is to handle the theology of whatever the topic is they give me. And this year they wanted to do what are the five senses, uh, which is really fascinating. I've never done it before. So I've done a lot of thinking and have come to realize that uh, our senses are absolutely critical for us to make sense of who God is. I asked a couple weeks back, how many of you just love being out in creation? I think most of you wouldn't be up here. Well, when you're out there, all of your senses are engaged, aren't they? Every single one. And so these are, these are some of the ways that we learn about God. And uh, this is no different. We've touched. But let me remind you what we've talked about here. When we do Advent or any tradition that we do as a church, we do it for a reason. Um, it's not only to make you feel good. We'll come back to that. I actually want to talk to you today about how this makes you feel. I've kind of avoided it because that is a, how does Christmas feel? That's the topic today. A a tradition done well, no matter what it is in a church, if it's done well, it brings Christ into our world in a very real way. The old King James uses the imagery of we see through a dark... Glass, glass darkly or dimly. The newer translations say we're looking in a mirror. We're looking at a reflection, try to make sense. One day we will see directly. And so when we do a tradition well, just just for a brief moment, that dark glass becomes clear. And the holy comes into our world. Christ appears to us. We get just a glimpse, but it's a good one. A tradition done poorly shields us from the truth and doesn't help us to see the reality of what we're doing. And so the reason why we do these traditions is because we want to generate a true sense of hope. Uh, We should be longing for the return of the Lord. Advent, the appearing of Christ. We should long for that. The first century world, it was fairly easy for them to long for that because life was not very good. They were oppressed by the Romans. Most of them were poor. They really had to work hard to survive, and they longed for the Lord to come back and rescue them. Um, second Advent, we long for the Lord to come back. It's a little more of a challenge for us, isn't it? Because life isn't as bad for us, not as bad as many other Christians in the world. Life's pretty good. We have our challenges. We have things going on, but it's, it's a little more difficult for us to really picture the Lord coming back and long for that. And that's what Advent is all about, is helping us to cultivate that sense of, come Lord Jesus, we want you to come back. We look forward to it. We want you here with us. But touch, in the meantime, helps us to enjoy Christ in today's world. Uh, You're going to be surprised, I think, how that happens. When we go back into the Old Testament and we begin to look at the concept of touch, it's a very important sense. Very important. I'm going to read to you some of these verses right out of the Old Testament. <clears throat> the first thing that touch does is it serves as a protection against uncleanness. Uncleanness. Now listen to these verses. These are very strange to our ears. Very foreign to our world. This is out of Leviticus 5. If anyone becomes aware that they're guilty. Guilty. Wow. Guilty of what? If anyone becomes aware that they are guilty, in other words, they have unwittingly touched anything ceremonially unclean, whether it's the carcass of an unclean animal, wild or domestic, or of any unclean creature that moves along the ground. So if they become aware of that, and they're unaware that they have become unclean, but then they come to realize their guilt. Wow, we're guilty for touching the wrong animal. Or if they touch... Touch human uncleanness, anything that would make them unclean, even though they are unaware of it, but then they learn of it and they realize their guilt, they must confess in what way they have sinned. It's a sin to touch something unclean. That's very foreign to us, isn't it? It's very odd to think in those categories. Then you have another one, dealing with unclean meat. Meat that touches... Okay, there's a word. Meat that touches anything ceremonially unclean must not be eaten. It must be burned up. And as for other meat, anyone uh, ceremonially clean may eat it. But if anyone who is unclean eats any meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, they must be cut off from their people. Out with you. You're out of here. Anyone who touches something unclean, whether human uncleanness or an unclean animal or any unclean creature that moves along the ground, then eats any of the meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord must be cut off from their people. So if you become unclean and you celebrate in the, uh, the, the meal, you're out. You're done. You're out of the group. See you later. Enjoy life alone. Leviticus 15. Here's another one. Any bed the man with a discharge lies on will be unclean. Anything he sits on will be unclean. So think about like an open wound here, you know, a wound that hasn't healed and it's discharging. Anyone who touches, who simply touches his bed, must wash their clothes, bathe with water, and they will be unclean until evening. Whoever sits on anything that the man with the discharge sits on must wash their clothes, bathe with water, and they will be unclean until evening. Whoever touches the man physically touches the man. Who has a discharge must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean until evening. Boy, those are kind of strange. There's many more passages. You can just do a simple search on your computer for touch, and it just they just roll out. Touch is very important in the Old Testament. Here's a couple of thoughts on these passages. Clearly, these particular rules relate to sanitation and protection from disease. We get that. But it's far deeper than that, as we're going to see in a minute. In Israel's legal system, the outward uh, purity of touch becomes a symbol of what's going on in the heart. And so as God begins to lay down the laws of what they can actually touch and not touch, that's designed to communicate something, as you'll see in just a moment. Okay, the second thing, a category of verses about touching, have to do with how unapproachable God is. Okay, how unapproachable God is. So this is at Mount Sinai. Now, just to give you the context, they have been out of Egypt now. They're just starting their third month since they left Egypt. They know very little about God. They have seen the ten plagues, so they know of his power. Excuse me, still fighting. Something. So they they know of his power, but they haven't actually met him. So at the beginning of chapter, okay, now that we're out in the wilderness, Israelites have left us alone now, three months, and so wash your clothes. Think about the sacrifice involved in the desert, washing your clothes. We're going to get enough water to wash the clothes of a nation. Wash your clothes before you come to me and approach me, and then I'm going to introduce myself to you. Here's what he says. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or even touch the foot of it. So they're at the base of Mount Sinai. They're just getting ready to meet God and somehow they drew a line and said, this is the foot of the mountain. Don't touch it. Don't touch the mountain. Listen to what happens. Whoever touches the mountain will be put to death. Don't mess with God. That's a clear message. The holy. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live that touches the mountain. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Don't mess with God. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. That's Exodus 19. Only then. So you have the picture. The Israelites, the nation walks right up. Don't touch it. Or you die. So then God introduces himself. Hi, I'm God. Let me tell you about me. No, that's not what he does. Smoke begins to come down turns dark lightning begins to flash a trumpet begins to blare so loudly that they're covering their ears and then the earthquake shakes the whole mountain that's Exodus 19 Exodus 20 Moses has to chase them across the other side of the valley it's one of the to me the funniest passages God terrified them he terrified them this is our God and he, they run to the other side of the valley. He has to go get them. And he says to them, do not be afraid. Exodus 20, 20. Do not be afraid. God did this to put his fear within you. That is the passage from which all the other passages about fear begin to make sense. God doesn't want us to be afraid. He wants us to respect. What he's telling them is, I'm bigger than all the other gods. You saw what I just did. You have nothing to worry about. I am your God. There's not a God around that can even come close to touching you or hurting you. Therefore, I did that to put that deep respect inside of me, inside of you. Don't mess with God. Then you have a famous passage, Second 6. David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He's now the king. Uh Saul's out of the picture and he picks up the Ark of the Covenant and he didn't bother to stop and read the rules. There were very specific rules on how to treat the Ark. You see, the Ark was God's footstool. It goes into the Holy of Holies. It is a holy object. And that's God's footstool. That's how it's pictured. That's how it's described. The God of the universe. This, the, the cosmos is his temple. That's how the psalmist presents it. And this Ark of the Covenant... Is his footstool where he rests to administer all the love and justice of the world. It had very specific rules of how to transport it, touch it, who could handle it, who couldn't, how you did it, how you did not do it. And David didn't bother to read the rules. He just loads it up on a cart and starts pulling it. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah, one of the men, reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burdened against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And God struck him down and he died. Second Samuel 6. Don't mess with God. This is touching. He just touched the ark to stabilize it. Touch the mountain and you die. That's the message. You see, what God is communicating is I'm God and you are not. You don't get your way. It's that simple. It's that simple. I'm God. It's powerful, isn't it? It's powerful. There's a third grouping of passages, though, that have to talk about. uh, If the first group talks about avoiding the unclean, the set this group talks about uh, touching the holy. What happens when you approach what is holy? So this one's regarding the altar. Exodus 29, Purify the altar by making atonement for it, and atone it, uh, anoint it to consecrate it. Set it apart, make it holy, in other words. For seven days, make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar will be most holy, and whoever touches the altar will become holy. Wow. It's a whole different set of verses, isn't it? That we do have some freedom to move toward holiness. Or Exodus 6, the sin offering is to be slaughtered before the Lord in the place the burnt offering is slaughtered. It is most holy. The sin offering. You're, offering, you're taking the life of an animal so you don't have to give your life. Okay? And somebody's going to pay for your sin. It's going to be an animal in this case. The priest who offers it shall eat it. It is to be eaten in the sanctuary area, in the courtyard of the tent of meeting, who what, whatever touches any of this flesh becomes holy. Huh. All right. You see what God is doing here? Don't mess with God. Don't mess with the holy. Just don't do it. And he's beginning through the sense of touch to communicate to us a very important truth, which we're going to see how that affects us today. But a very important truth. Some things are holy, and some things are not. Some things are holy, some things are, are uh, secular. Some things are clean, some things are unclean. Don't mess with the holy and the unclean. Don't get those confused. He's beginning to help us understand. Very. It's a very real picture. It's a picture that our kids can understand. They can grab hold of. This is unclean and this is holy. You can touch this, but don't touch this. It's very clear. It's very black and white. Why did he do that? He's beginning to help us understand we live in a very broken world, a cursed world. We do. Everything that holy has to go through a ritual process to be declared holy. There's nothing else holy in the world. Except what God decrees. That's why when Moses walks over to the burning bush. God said, take off your sandals. What are you doing? You're standing on holy ground. What's the difference between this dirt and that dirt? Moses quickly takes off his sandals. God declared that was holy. God is the one that gets to choose. We don't. That's the goodness and the greatness and the power of being God. He is God and we are not. Amazing, isn't it? Okay, summary of... Let me give you some thoughts on these Old Testament passages. The overriding purpose of the law in the Old Testament is not about physical purity as much as it is about purity of the heart. And he begins to teach this lesson through objects the very way we teach our children. That's how he begins to help understand it. We learn that God communicates to us in very concrete ways, and we learn that these senses, in this case touching, becomes very important, very important to God. But it's not only about the touching. It's about what happens to us when we do that. We learn that God sees human sin as so serious that people are tangibly marked by it. You become unclean. You touch this guy with a wound, Open wound, or, you know, you're not doing anything until evening, you're done. You touch anything unclean, you're, un- you're done. You violate the rules of touch of approaching God, it's more than being unclean, you're dead. And so he uses these senses to begin to teach us lessons. Through the sense of touch, God is teaching us the difference between the holy and the secular, the clean and the unclean. That becomes very important. Okay, now given the background of this law, is there a more shocking reversal we find than what happens in the incarnation of Jesus? Are we allowed to approach God? Certainly not touch Him. Are we? And yet Mary knew who He was, and she is expected to touch God. It's her child, her baby. I'm going to read to you a story. Some of you have heard it before. I want you to think about all five of the senses as I read this to you. The noise and the bustle began earlier than usual in the village. As night gave way to dawn, people were already on the streets. Vendors were positioning themselves on the corners of the most heavily traveled avenues. Store owners were unlocking the doors of their shops. Children were awakened by the excited barking of the street dogs and the complaints of donkeys pulling carts. The owner of the inn had awakened earlier than most in the town. After all, the inn was full, all the beds were taken. Every available mat or blanket had been put to use. Soon all the customers would be stirring and there would be a lot of work to do. One's imagination is kindled, thinking about the conversation of the innkeeper and his family at the breakfast table. Did anyone mention the arrival of the young couple the night before? Did anyone ask about the welfare of the young pregnant woman? Did anyone comment on the pregnancy of the girl or the donkey? Maybe. Perhaps someone raised the subject, but at best it was raised, not discussed. There was nothing that novel about them. They were possibly one of several families turned away that night. Besides, who had time to talk about them when there was so much excitement in the air? Augustus did the economy of Bethlehem a favor when he decreed that a census should be taken. Who could remember when such commerce had hit the village? No, it is doubtful that anyone mentioned the couple's arrival or wondered about the connection of the girl. They're too busy. The day was upon them. The day's bread had to be made. The morning's chores had to be done. There was too much to do to imagine that the impossible had actually occurred. God had entered the world as a baby. Yet, were someone to chance upon the sheep stable on the outskirts of Bethlehem that morning, what a peculiar scene they would behold. I mean, the stable stinks like all stables do. The stench of urine, dung, sheep, reeks pungently in the air. The ground is hard. The hay is scarce. Cobwebs cling to the ceiling. The mouth scurries across the dirt. A more lowly place of birth could not exist. Off to one side sit a group of shepherds. They sit silently on the floor, perhaps perplexed, perhaps in awe, no doubt in amazement. Their night watch had been interrupted by an explosion of light from heaven and a symphony of angels. You see, God goes to those who have time to hear him. To those who have time to hear him. So on this cloudless night, he went to simple shepherds. Near the young mother sits the weary father. If anyone is dozing, he is. He can't remember the last time he sat down. And now that the excitement has subsided a bit... Now that Mary and the baby are comfortable, he leans against the wall of the stable and feels his eyes grow heavy. He still hasn't figured it all out. The mystery of the event puzzles him, but he hasn't the energy to wrestle with the question. What's important is that the baby is fine and Mary is uh, safe. As sleep comes, he remembers the name the angel told him to use, Jesus. We'll call him Jesus. Wide awake is Mary. My, how long, young she looks! Her head rests on the soft leather of Joseph's saddle. The pain has been eclipsed by wonder. She looks into the face of the baby that she's holding—her son, her Lord, her Majesty, His Majesty. At this point in history, who best understands God is, and what He is doing, is a teenage girl and a smelly stable. She can't take her eyes off of him. Somehow, Mary knows she is holding God. So this is he. Is there a more shocking reversal in the Bible than that? We can't even approach God without dying. And she's expected to hold him. You see, the holy came into our world. What does Christmas feel like? For her, it felt like holding a baby. Look at all these other passages. Matthew 8. Jesus became unclean by touching a leper and healing him. Matthew 9. Jesus became unclean by touching a blind man and healing him. Luke 22, he becomes unclean by touching the ear of the Roman servant to the high priest when Peter cut off his ear. Jesus didn't mind becoming unclean. The holy has come into our world. It's an amazing story. No other religion has this story. None. So, what does all this mean? What do we do with this? This certainly raises questions about the true nature of holiness, which means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. The holy has come into our world, an unclean world where we live. And what does that mean? Well, God used touch more than any other sense to help us understand the nature of holiness, the things that we handle, the people that we touch. We learn as humans to avoid painful touches, right? And to move toward pleasant touches. Well, holiness is the same way. As we move toward either unclean or holy things that happen in our world. The prophets, by the way, use very graphic language to communicate Israel's touching, if you will. Moving into the unclean world with pleasure. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they have pictures. that say the priests are walking down the street with the blood dripping off their robes where they've taken advantage of people. Talk about graphic. It is possible to love the unclean. In fact, isn't that Satan's big distraction? To get us to love the unclean? But with Jesus, we learn something very new. Holiness, while it is designed to protect us, has a more significant meaning. You see, as holy people... We are to live in an unholy world. We're not to avoid it. We're to live in the midst of it. But here's the difference. The uncleanness is not to taint us. We are to make it clean. That's what God did with us. The holy came into an unholy world, a fallen, broken, cursed world, to bring about a sense of holiness and cleanness. That's what we are to do. And I'm attributing this to Jude. Sorry Jude, you're going to hate this. She said it this way. Oh, you mean we are to touch others and clean them up. Exactly. That's what it means. Hebrews 10. You have been declared holy by the will of God once for all time. We are a holy people that lives in the midst of a very broken world. And we are to do what Jesus does. We are to clean it up. We are to bring holiness to the unholiness and to transform it and redeem it so that it becomes good and right. That's what renewal is all about. If anyone is in Christ, they are part of the new creation. That's what it's all about. So this is the message of Christ. But he goes a little bit further. He invites us to come toward him now and touch him. What we weren't allowed to do in the Old Testament. 1 John chapter 1, the disciples touched Jesus. Here's what they say. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, hearing, seeing, what we have looked at and our hands have touched, handled as Jesus. Luke 24, here's what Jesus said while they were still talking about this after the resurrection, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, "Peace be with you. They were startled, they're frightened and they're backing away. This is a ghost. He said to them, "Why are you troubled and why do you doubt, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet, it's me. It's me. Touch me. Touch me and see. A, a ghost does not have flesh and bones. You see, Isaiah predicted this in Isaiah 41. Talk about touching. I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand. Is that touching? It is, isn't it? Who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. This is why we long for the return of Christ so that we can feel His hug, His embrace. We can hold His hand. This is why we long for that return. Okay, one more thought. We'll finish with this. As Protestants, it's typical for us, as American Western Protestants, to shy away from anything warm and fuzzy. Right? You know, the word for the Holy Spirit is the word pneuma, which is also the same word for wind, breath, Sometimes the translators have trouble in your English versions. Do we put spirit with a capital S, spirit with a small s, like our spirit? Is it wind? Is it breath? It's all the same word. Wind is the one force in nature that requires touch more than any other. Oh, you can hear the effects, but it's the effects of it. You can see the effects, but it's touch that allows you to experience it. You feel the breeze, right? or the stiff wind so when Paul says in Romans 8 (coughs) his spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God how does he do that? how does he do that? do you ever have something happen and you just feel that overflowing joy? That intense feeling? Could that be the Spirit of God present? That's one of the fruit of the Spirit, joy, by the way. You ever have something happen it's so uncanny it produces goosebumps? Is that the Spirit of God? It requires a sense of touch to enjoy the wind doesn't it? What is it like for us to relax? I like what he said in the story. God comes to those who have time for him. What is it like for us to relax enough to enjoy the Spirit of God? What if we actually are in his presence? The Holy comes into our life far more than we know it and sense it, we're just too busy. We're too distracted. I think that is Satan's greatest tool, distraction. What if the Lord is with us right now? So when you have those uncanny experiences, that's just a taste, a taste of what probably happens more often than we realize. In just a few minutes, we're going to do communion, and I'm going to give you a chance to reflect on that a little bit. are you thinking about that? Father, we are so grateful. We're so grateful that You taught us about uncleanness, and then you were not afraid. You were not unwilling to step into our world and show us what it means to be a holy people, to bring transformation, life, to bring cleanness to the world around us and the people that we love so dearly. Thank you for being that kind of God, to not only enter our world, to bring the holy to us, but to do it in a way that teaches us a respect for you, a love for our friends, and a model, a way of loving them. In your son's name we pray, amen. As I say every week,